Welcome to Cash Money. My name is Patrick Vieira, and I'm joined today with Brian Hankey and also with Keith Wiener, the CEO of Monetary Metals. Welcome both. Great to have you on air. Let's get this started. Keith, can you tell us a bit about yourself and Monetary Metals? Thanks for thanks for having me. I'm Keith Wiener, founder and CEO of Monetary Metals. We were founded because there's a problem in the dollar monetary system. It isn't working anymore. And uh, we want to bring back a return to the gold standard. And we want to do that by making it possible for people to earn interest on their gold in gold. That's what we do. We pay interest on gold. And we do that by financing productive enterprise. And so if you're financing productive enterprise, people are earning a return on their gold. That's how gold will resume, you know, circulation. Uh, you know, it would, circulation of gold was stopped in the 1930s. How do you resume it? That's how you resume it. And that's, that's what we do. The reason I wanted to invite you for this interview is I recently started reading a bunch of your articles and I found them really fascinating, particularly the one where you talk about interest rates and how they don't always have the exact effect on prices that everybody seems to think they do. As I read through your blog and listened to your podcasts, I came up with a whole bunch of questions. Do you think that gold and silver prices are suppressed or manipulated through means other than naked shorting? Yeah, I, I think the short answer in the context in which I think you're asking that, no. I think, you know, silver to a lesser degree, but gold is a very deep, very liquid market. You know, billions of participants globally. You know, the idea that the gold price would be tens of thousands of dollars, but, you know, for decades, but, you know, for some suppression scheme, would be an extraordinary claim requiring extraordinary evidence. In the larger sense, though, I think the answer is yes. And that is governments, every government in the world has extensive propaganda apparatus. And I don't say that in a conspiratorial sense. I mean it in the sense that the government educates everybody. That's, you know, public schools is plank number 10 in the Communist Manifesto, arguably the single most important plank, because if you control the minds of the children, then you know, you've got them for life. And um, from the very earliest ages, they're indoctrinated to think of, you know, in the United States, pieces of paper with green ink on them. Uh, in other countries, it's other colors, and in some cases, it's more like plastic and not paper. But people are encouraged to think of that, not encouraged. They're taught as if there's no other possible conceivable thing to think of as money, that's it. Then you have the tax code. You know, if you buy gold and then you sell it at a higher price, there's a capital gain. In many jurisdictions, certainly in the U.S., there is. There's, you know, financial regulation. If you're a financial advisor, you have a duty to um, put your client, especially as clients get older and retired, living on fixed income, to be reasonable and prudent. If your client, you know, had 10% of their portfolio holding gold, you potentially face the risk that, you know, if the gold price drops and there's a lawsuit, that not only are you going to lose the lawsuit, but then the, the regulators could come down on you like a ton of bricks. That, that wasn't reason, reasonable. That wasn't prudent. Every day you turn on the TV and they talk about gold is volatile. Today it went up, today it went down. So there's all of this propaganda apparatus that serves to convince people that gold is some sort of risky, volatile commodity against the stable dollar. And so in that sense, then people are afraid to hold gold, think that holding the dollar is safe. That's not really not really accurate. And then if people didn't think that way, what would the price of gold be? Well, I'm sure it would be higher. There's no way to calculate how much higher, obviously, but 
so in that in that sense, yeah, I do think you know the whole not even just the financial system, but the whole system of governance today is is manipulated in a broad sense. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that that's in line with your article. I can't remember the exact title, but you kind of debunked this idea that the big banks are just keeping the price down by selling huge amounts of naked shorts. Was that my um, thoughtful disagreement with Ted Butler? Yeah, I think that was one of the ones I read, and maybe there was another one. So moving on to silver, do you have any insights as to why silver seems to be going down? I know it bounced a little bit lately. I mean, given that the price of so many other things are seeing strong inflation now, particularly, you know, raw materials and food, since silver has a lot of industrial uses, why why is it not going up? So uh, again, I guess there's a short answer and a long answer. The the shorter answer, and, and I discussed this uh, this year in the, we put out an annual gold market outlook report. So the one for 2022 I'm talking about the difference between gold and silver on the monetary side. I mean, yes, you're correct. And I think it's pretty well understood by most people in the silver community that silver has an industrial you know, use. It's in solar panels, it's in electronics, it's in all sorts of things. Anti-microbial wipes, some, some of them have silver. But uh, from the monetary side, the demand for silver tends to be, and historically this always was the case, from the wage earner, who's setting aside, let's say, 10% of his wages and putting that into precious metals. Well, if you're doing that, you know, and you're in the U.S. today, and let's say you're a skilled, you know, blue-collar worker, tradesman, artisan, craftsman, 10% of your weekly wages could be 50 or 100 bucks, you know, maybe 100 bucks plus. And if you want to buy that amount of gold, you're talking very small size units for physical gold that you want to take home. You pay a really big premium to get really small units of gold, a little one gram bar or something. And then when you go to sell it later, you're not necessarily going to capture the premium. There's a risk you won't. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. And so um, to get in and out of gold in really small quantities like that is bossy. The wage earners, you know, are, I mean, everybody who's, who's in, in that, facing that dilemma sort of gets that. That's not hypothetical. We totally get that. In silver, you know, if you're buying 50 or 100 bucks worth of silver, that's several, you know, one ounce coins, which you don't have quite that same wide Ben-esque spread. The other thing is just simply from a, the pleasure of holding it. And I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't emphasize too much that gold and silver are shiny and heavy and there's a certain pleasure in seeing them and holding them. But that is part of what made them money, at least historically. If you're going to set aside 50 bucks and buy some precious metals, would you rather have, you know, two or three or four one ounce silver coins or some tiny little wafer floating in a window, you know, in a clear plastic window in a little credit card sized, you know, thing. The satisfaction, the visceral satisfaction of holding that silver, that little stack of coins is greater than holding that, uh, that little fleck of gold that you can't even touch because it's, it's behind, the, uh, behind the glass as it were. Um, so anyway, so, so that's the difference in the, in the monetary reservation demand for the two metals. I think in general, Wages, especially for that kind of worker, there's a lot of discussion of, um, you know, for highly skilled, you know, laptop warriors or the laptop class or whatever they call them, you know, wages have been, you know, rising, you know, sharply. But I think generally and globally, the wages of the, you know, it's called skilled blue collar, you know, workers are, are really under pressure, uh, you know, especially relative to their cost of living. 
So the wage may be up, but the cost of living may be up more. And so their uh, budget for savings is more under stress than it was. I mean, you have to buy food. You don't have to save, but you have to buy food. Whereas gold is a capital asset and it trades against other capital assets. And so, you know, this is, this is not the skilled blue collar class. This is the capitalist class and they're buying and selling, whether it's artwork, real estate, shares, bonds, you know, gold trades off against all those things. And so the, the two different, and that group, I mean, not necessarily in the last uh, couple of months, but that group has been doing very well, whereas the, the, the labor group, not so well. And so you see the disparate performance of the two assets, you know, gold and silver, and you see, you know, higher gold silver ratio as a consequence of that. Okay, that makes sense. Staying on that topic, could you explain why silver is considered the other monetary metal? despite its high level of industrial uses, because a lot of people say one of the good things about gold that makes it good money is that it doesn't have a lot of industrial uses. It's really, it has one good use and it's good money. <laughs> well, I, one, one really uh, short quip that I, could, that I could offer to that, if gold were 20 bucks an ounce, it would have a lot more industrial uses, but at, at you know near $2,000 an ounce, not so much. It's a very interesting question, right? Why are there two monetary metals, you know, when in general markets tend to be winner take all, right? So silver replaced salt, gold replaced cattle, I mean, historically, uh, and so on. Why, you know, these two metals seem very similar. They're both heavy, they're both shiny, they're both good conductors of heat and electricity. They can both be polished, drawn into wire, all these things. Silver tarnishes, but not that easily. And it doesn't, it doesn't you know, completely come undone the way, you know, iron does. You, know, you get a little bit of tarnish. The tarnish is actually protective on silver. You know, why didn't one beat the other? And I think the answer is gold. Gold is the is the best money, especially in larger transaction sizes. And so gold is you can think of it as gold is is the best for carrying value, economic value over distance. And silver is is best in small transaction sizes. And therefore, it's best in carrying value over time, especially for the wage earner. So I think they, I think they fell into two different niches. One being um, uh, the capital asset for large, large value, silver being the savings and small values. And so one could say that gold is the most marketable commodity, and silver is the most marketable in the small. Or gold is gold is the most marketable in the large. Silver is the most marketable in the small, which is which is the distinction. But as to are they both still money? Yes, there's still vast amounts of silver stocks out there. And even if in any given year there's a slight deficit between mining output and consumption, you know, and of course there is some silver recycling, not as much as gold, mankind has been accumulating the stuff for 5,000 years. And um, I, don't think, I don't think all that's been decumulated by, by any means. So I think it's still, still, it's still as, a, uh, as a metallic money. Do you have any insights as to what's happening with platinum and palladium? I mean, usually palladium trades cheaper than gold and platinum is more expensive. And now the situation is the exact opposite. I don't really study those markets. To me, those are expensive industrial ingredients and not monetary metals. I could offer some relatively superficial opinions, obviously supply and demand in those markets of altered from their historical patterns, but I don't, I don't have any particular insight nor any particular data uh, in, into those markets. 
Okay, I'd like to move on to a bit different topic here. I think in one of your podcasts or one of your articles, you had referred to the period from 1984 to 2020 or maybe 2022 as a period of falling interest rates and also soft prices. Just going by my own personal experience, everything seems a lot more expensive in the last 20 years. It's not the inflation that we've seen recently, but I can't think of much other than, you know, maybe some technology products that are staying the same and going down or going down. And I often reflect on like when I, 20 years ago when I was in college, what $20 would buy and it, it was a lot, you know, you could get a, fill up your car, get a meal, maybe have a beer, maybe have a couple coins left. And now you, you can't get anything. Right. That's why I use the word soft rather than necessarily falling. My argument, and I published my theory of interest in prices. Uh, I also gave a 15 minute talk, which was recorded on video. Uh, when I gave a talk at the Mises Institute annual, it was an annual economic research conference a couple of years back, and that's on YouTube. But in really brief, a rising interest rate causes rising profit margins. Um, because the cost of capital is going up. So, you know, think if you see a market opportunity as an entrepreneur, I can go into that market because there's a profit to be made there. Whether or not you can go into that market depends entirely on, or one of, one of the key factors, I should say, depends on the cost of capital, the, cost, the interest rate. The higher the interest rate, what it's doing is it's rendering, you know, bit by bit, company by company, it's rendering plant and equipment uneconomic. And when that equipment goes end of life, there's no business case to borrow to, you know, to replace it. So the period of the 1950s through the 1970s, especially the late 60s through the 70s, was a period of hollowing out capital-intensive industry in the U.S. And so it's a, it's a process of reducing supply by making the cost of being a supplier you know, go up. And so uh, you know, companies during that period just had pricing power. They could just publish a new price list of higher prices and just get it and sell out their entire production because that was that that was that climate post you know, so that so the interest rate spiked in 1981 everybody credits volcker and to some degree reagan for being smart and this and that and the other thing they happened to be there at the moment that the trend reversed and it reached its end and there's a whole positive feedback loop that, that makes that trend continue for decades as there is a, a different positive feedback loop that makes the, the falling interest rate you know trend continue but after 1981, we have a falling interest rate. And um, I've been one of the few voices in 2015 when they said they're going to start hiking interest rates. I said, no way. They won't get very far and they won't hold it for long. And now this year they said we're going to hike interest rates. And I've been very vocal and very on the record of saying, no way. They won't get very far. They won't hold it for very long. Now we see the, on the long end, the 10-year bond in interest rate is rolled over. It's coming back down. They're inverting the yield curve. We'll see how much longer that they continue with this before they cry uncle. But we are very much still in a falling interest rates environment. Now, this is important to the question of prices because in a falling rates environment, there is an ever increasing subsidy to producers to borrow, to build the plant and equipment, to go into business and produce everything from hamburgers to hamburger grill equipment, to trucks that deliver hamburgers to everything. The cost of capital is falling. And then with that, by a process of arbitrage, profit margins fall, 
as some spread to the interest rate. So falling interest rates is, is essentially a subsidy for, for increased production, increased supply, which is a subsidy, therefore, for more consumption, you know, more supply leading to more consumption. Prices rising, especially in the last several years, against this trend, but for non-monetary reasons. And so the first of those, I've written enormous amounts on the concept of what I call useless ingredients, a term that I came up when I thought about in gasoline, they're forced to add either ethanol or some chemical called MBTE is added to gasoline. It's a useless ingredient that doesn't do anything for your car. It doesn't do anything for the consumer who's buying the gasoline. In most cases, so the consumer doesn't value it. And in most cases, the consumer isn't even aware that the regulator has forced the producer to add this useless ingredient. However, the useless ingredient has a real cost. And so the relentless increase in regulations over the last more than 40 years, but let's just say over the last 40 years, has been a general force pushing prices up. That's number one. Number two has been, certainly in more recent years, an increase in green energy restrictions. Whether it's you can't build a pipeline, to you can't frack in the state of New York, to uh, you can't get a permit to renew your coal-fired plant, whatever it is, governments much more aggressively in Europe and in the UK, but to uh, and to a lesser degree in the US, governments have been attacking the production and the consumption of energy, which of course affects the prices, not only of energy, but everything that's made with energy, which is pretty much everything. Um, so that's been a, uh, a factor for higher prices. Since at least the Trump administration, but and not just in the US, but globally, there's been an increase in not only tariffs, but more broadly, what I call trade war. So look at what's going on in the semiconductors right now. There's a general uh, move towards what's called onshoring. So that is a, a distrust of anything made in China, but also pulling out of Taiwan and pulling that manufacturing. In the case of Europe, they're pulling it into Europe. In the case of the US, pulling it into the US for, for political reasons and at higher cost. I mean, there was a reason why it was in Asia because it was more cost effective. If governments make companies fear to be producing in Asia, then, then they produce somewhere else which is their second best choice and, and at higher cost. You have all sorts of weird tariffs. Everyone thought that Trump was imposing tariffs to you know, get back at China, which is part of it. But then you, know, you have tariffs on Canadian imported lumber in the US, very significant ones, they're not, not small. Uh, tariffs on everything, you know, including Scotch whiskey imported from uh, Scotland. And that's been, uh, that's been a trend. Then we get to the COVID lockdown and then the unlock, which led to this incredible whiplash effect that's still being felt through supply chains and particularly through the logistics, you know, system shipping, warehousing, loading, unloading, docking, undocking, trains, trucks, you know, you name it. You know, you took an industry that didn't have a lot of spare capacity. Everything was in flow. Everything was at 100% capacity. You lock it down. All the infrastructure, you know, everything from rolling truck chassis to container ships all in the wrong locations. And then when you unlock, everything has to move. But meanwhile, now demand is ahead of it and they can never really catch up. And, and I mean, they're making headway on it, but it's been just this incredible uh, you know, nightmare to, to work through. And then finally you take Ukraine where not only, you know, Ukraine was one of the biggest exporters of wheat and obviously they're not producing or exporting any wheat this year. So you take, and, and Russia's production also and certainly exports have been going down. 
So you just simply reduce supply by, you know, by war. And then, of course, the West responded with sanctions and other things that uh, are making it more difficult to get, uh, you know, oil and natural gas and other things. So when you combine green energy restrictions, let's say in the UK, where they banned domestic production of natural gas, they forced by law heavy industry and power plants to switch from coal and oil to natural gas, combine that then with the logistics problems of, um, you know, they have to now import all their natural gas, but now importing requires shipping and shipping is all messed up. And then finally you start throwing around, uh, you know, all the, all the sanctions on Russia and then Russia's response to say, okay, well, we're going to reduce the flow of gas and so on. Then the price of natural gas in, in the UK, you know, spikes a thousand percent or something like that, or 1500%. It's, it's been massive, which has knock on effects because fertilizer is produced with natural gas. So fertilizer producers in the UK shut down and said, we can't make any money. So the price of fertilizer skyrockets. And then of course that's gonna impact the price of food. Everyone's gonna look at this whole thing. They're not gonna understand all the stuff that I just said. They're gonna think Milton Friedman said, quote, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon, unquote, and think, yeah, central bank printing, that's what, that's what happened. And um, my analysis is, hey, look at all these other non-monetary factors. That's what really uh, is the culprit. Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, after reading through your writings, I kind of tend to agree. Uh, for many years, I thought I believed in this kind of, you know, interest rate up, inflation down, interest rate down, inflation up. But I really see now the other side to it. I also wanted to ask you. Actually, I just want to add one other thing, which is sort of a general business environment kind of thing. Anybody who's running a business, and I don't, I don't care if you're just a one one person company that's um, mowing lawns, um, or a twenty person company that's doing I don't know general janitorial services, to um, you know any kind of regulated manufacturing, food service, finance, whatever, let alone healthcare there's just been a relentless onslaught in regulations. The cost of compliance is going up. The complexity of compliance is going up. The number of people you have to hire to stay ahead of the compliance is going up. The law firm bills are going up. The penalties for non-compliance are going up. Everything's just becoming harder and harder and harder to do business. Of course, all that you know, you know has to come out in, in the Washington foreign crisis. Anyways, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. no, that's okay. Just you know, thinking about that. Yeah, that, no, that's a very good comment. The next thing I wanted to ask you is, would you say that you agree that the best money is one that tends to expand slowly and predictably? Well, it's kind of a compound question. I mean, there's the predictableness versus the best money is the money that whose quantity increases the least. A couple of weeks back, it was, oh, it was last week, I was in um, Auburn, Alabama at the Mises Institute uh, participating in a debate it was basically gold versus Bitcoin. And I was the gold guy, obviously, and uh, there was a Bitcoin guy there. We were encouraged to, to present slides. I only had one slide. And the slide that I presented is one that I've posted as kind of a meme to Facebook and Twitter uh, in, in the past over the years. And that is it's a picture labeled the price of an ounce of gold. And it was a flat line over oh, 5,000 years. And it was a flat line at one ounce. And um, I said to the audience, everyone's looking at it and kind of chuckling. And I said, you know, you could take this as a trite 
tautology, you know, one equals one, ha ha. So that's not what I mean. Um, the Bitcoin people would say, hey, one, you know, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. But not even the Bitcoin people really believe that Bitcoin is a unit of measure. Because if they did, they would have to say the entire world has undergone hyper-deflationary collapse. I mean, a business that used to be worth 10 million Bitcoin, you know, is now worth 400 Bitcoin or something. I mean, what an incredible what, destruction of wealth if Bitcoin were a unit of measure, which it is not. But I said, you know, looking at gold now in this, in this light, um, Austrian economics teaches us that as the quantity of a commodity increases, um, then its, its value or its utility as a margin decreases. So I, I live here in a suburb of Phoenix, um, in Phoenix, Arizona. In the summer, the temperatures can be 120 degrees Fahrenheit which I think is approaching 50 degrees centigrade, something yeah. like that. Um, if you're wandering around the desert at three in the afternoon, you know, you're going to quickly be uh, extremely thirsty and, and actually a danger of losing your life. It's that bad. Oh, and, and the humidity is like 5%. So it's very dry, extremely hot. You're going to go from comfortable to, you know, medically serious, you know, um, uh, thirst, dehydration, you know, in, in probably an hour. Or something. So uh, suppose you're in that condition and you're wandering through the desert and you came across somebody selling bottles of water out of the back of his truck. What would you pay for the first bottle of water? Well, you'd empty your wallet, you'd empty your bank account, it's your life. Um, what would you pay for the second bottle of water? Well, that's that'll get you back to civilization, assuming you can find your way back. <clears throat> what would you pay for the third? Well, that's a spare in case you, you know, have to wander around a little bit. What would you pay for the fourth, the fifth, the sixth? There's a point at which the water has no further value at the margin. Its value at the margin diminishes so rapidly, but that by unit six, maybe arguably unit four or five, it has no value. You don't want it. It's actually disvalued. Um, but however, gold, and, and that, by the way, this is true in big commodities markets for, for the entire market as well as for the individual. If the wheat harvest is 2% higher than what the um, Department of Agriculture estimated because it's just the right combination of, of sun and rain, and there's no insects that year or whatever. And the wheat harvest is 2% higher. The wheat price will collapse. It's called a glut. You know, that's a disincentive to farmers to grow wheat for the next crop rotation and an incentive for the marginal consumer of starch. Maybe it's wallpaper paste. I don't know who uses starch and just doesn't really care whether it's corn or wheat. But somebody switches from some other starch to wheat. It's a consequence of that. So there's more consumption, less production, it works a glut off, and then the market eventually returns you know, to normal. Um, in the case of gold, gold is not consumed, as, as you referred to earlier. It doesn't have lots of industrial uses and other things. When it is used, it's generally recycled because it's so expensive. So all, virtually all of the gold mined in 5,000 years of human history is still in human hands, which is an extraordinary thing. And what that means is there isn't a glut, there isn't any such thing as a glut in gold. We just accumulate it without any particular limit, which means getting back to the concept of marginal utility, does the marginal utility of gold diminish? Well, if it does diminish, it's diminishing so slowly that after 5,000 years of accumulation, marginal cost is still less than marginal you know, value, and um, we continue to mine gold. Now, I argue that means that gold's marginal utility isn't diminishing at all. It's actually a flat line, which means that gold is capable of measuring economic value. 
and it, the dollar should be measured in gold, not the other way around, because, and, and the reason why this is true, is that the nth plus one unit of gold has the same value as the nth, as measured in gold itself, that it isn't diminishing, it's still, it's still attractive to mine, you know, and whatever the miners produce, the market, you know, readily absorbs. So that's the thing that makes, I forget exactly what your question was, hopefully I covered it with all this meandering, but that's what makes gold, uh, you know, unique and uniquely. What I originally asked was, if you think the best form of money is one that, that expands slowly and predictably. Oh, right. So, so I would say, I think the best form of money is the one whose utility as a margin diminishes the least, which may or may not necessarily be you know, non-increasing. So the Bitcoin people will say Bitcoin is better. It's a harder form of money than gold because its quantity doesn't go up, or at least not after it hits the 21 million cap. To which I, I turn this around and say, does Bitcoin have the same property that gold does? That is, you know, utility does not diminish at the margin. And we'll never know. Gold has conducted a 5,000 year experiment and is still going. And we still haven't found the crossover point where marginal cost is above marginal utility. In the case of Bitcoin, the, the, the central planner of Bitcoin was so terrified that Bitcoin's marginal utility did diminish that it didn't allow for the experiment to even be conducted. He set a hard cap. We'll never be able to run that experiment. We'll never know. So gold is the only thing whose utility to margin does not diminish, which is, I think, the most important characteristic in money, not necessarily its quantity, but that its value is consistent, which is a whole different thing. Well, just speaking hypothetically, what if we finally mine the last ounce of gold and there's just no more to be had. Can a fixed supply of money work? And what about a, a slowly decreasing supply of money? Would that yield a functioning economy or not really? So, so again, I don't, I don't really think in terms of quantity, but I think in terms of spread and things like diminishing marginal utility, interest rates. When you go to the grocery store and you wanna buy food for the week, you've got a couple of things in your mind. Number one, I know I'm going to need food for this week, so I have to stock up for a week's worth of food. Number two, this is how much I have in my pocket. And number three, as you look at the prices on all the items, that's what this costs, that's what that costs. You know, the total quantity of money doesn't really enter your mind. It's not really a thing. That said, in a certain sense, your question is kind of like what happens when man uses up all the resources on the earth? You know, and, and science fiction gives us stories of, you know, thousands of years in the future when all the mines have gone to, you know, the molten core and everything's been pulled out that can be pulled out. You know, what happens? Does that become a dystopia? Um, you know, maybe it does, I don't know. But the, the way it works right now and the way it works for the foreseeable future is that there's no such thing as mining all the gold, quote unquote, all. There's, you know, gold is mined at the margin. That is, everybody's always looking for the most attractive deposit. And then after that, the next most attractive deposit, and after that, the next one, and so on. And of course, every once in a while, a miner finds a really good deposit that's you know way better than marginal. But you know, over time, it's taken more technology and more power to you know extract the next ounce of gold versus where it was you know even let's say a hundred years ago, which which basically comes out in the wash as a cost. The cost, all else being equal, of mining an ounce of gold is going up. And then all else isn't equal because the technology is getting better. The, uh, you know, the ability to use energy or power 
is getting better. And so, um, you know, today, a mine with a convoy of driverless trucks, uh, all powered by diesel, is able to do at the same cost, what, 100 years ago, you know, a, a, a line of guys with pickaxes were doing annually. Um, and of course, on a much lower grade today versus you know, 100 years ago. So I, I don't think you ever, on the, on the current model, you ever really get to zero. You just get diminishing and diminishing and diminishing. And then the, the miners always come up with better and better technologies. Um, you know, same thing in computers, right? The demand for compute horsepower goes up and then Intel and all those companies, um, you know, deliver more compute power. And, um, you know, today we're walking around with more compute power in the phone in our pocket than what the definition of a supercomputer was when they were debating whether a supercomputer is munitions and therefore illegal to export uh, back in 1992. I think today uh, uh, an iPhone has more power than that so-called supercomputer did in those days. So it just, it just keeps moving towards the margin and, you know, life goes on. Well, I, I certainly agree that in the real world, you're probably not ever going to really mine the last ounce of gold, but thinking from a more abstract perspective, if we were in a world where the supply of money is fixed or maybe even slowly decreasing, how does that work? Does that work or would it be necessary to find a different form of money that can kind of expand slowly, but not, not too much? You know, I was, I was interacting on um, Twitter today. Per Byland was a professor of economics at the Austrian School, a leader at the, at the Mises Institute as well, had posted that, um, you know, people are reversing something with money. And I forget how he put it. It was a very elegant way that, um, you know, people confuse the functions of money with the intentions and, you know, how it came about, right? So nobody starts out saying, okay, there's this Byzantine general problem, uh, which is that, Suppose you have the city and the Byzantium, uh, Byzantine Empire is trying to attack it, and they have four or five generals hitting the city from different angles. But the terrain is such that generals can't see or communicate with each other directly. If any one general sends his force against the city, he'll be defeated. If they all attack synchronously, then the city will be defeated. However, the generals can't trust any message because it could be a, a spy from the city you know, doing it to, uh, to trick one of the generals to send his army to their death. And um, that's kind of how the Bitcoiners think of it, which is a very central planning sort of approach to the whole thing. But that's not how, you know, money evolved. Money evolved because people valued gold. And for anybody listening to this who hasn't held pure, you know, three nines or four nines gold in their hand, I encourage them to do it. There's a certain emotional response. Gold is extraordinarily heavy, much, much, much heavier than it has any right to be for its tiny little size. Um, I think that, you know, it has a tangible reality to it that any other coin feels like a, a cheap, you know, slug by comparison. And people valued gold. And then, you know, as, as they encounter the problems of trade, gold, well, even before gold, other things, but gold ultimately takes over because it solves problems for people. So if, if, if we suddenly can't mine any gold anymore, you're right, then what does that do to the stability of the value of gold that's part of the problem with Bitcoin is that the supply can't respond to changes in demand. And therefore, the only thing that can happen when the demand changes even slightly is, is price has to change and price can change very grossly 
in response to very small changes in demand. If that happened in gold, then that can kill its utility as money, particularly when you think about finance. So let's say I'm a farmer, let's say I'm a trucker, let's say I'm a manufacturer of computers. I borrow money to finance the capital I need to run that business. I can only borrow something that's stable, right? So the dollar is designed to be stable and going down slowly at 2% per year. And if the Fed could deliver on that, it would be wonderful for the borrowers. Kind of a, a raw deal for the lenders, but leaving that aside, if the borrowers knew that it would go down and steadily and not with you know giant corrections that reversed it, then it would be a great thing to borrow because it's stable and if anything, it's diminishing in value, which means you pay back slightly less than you borrowed. Um, Bitcoin is so unstable. You borrow Bitcoin when Bitcoin's worth $20,000. If you believe the Bitcoiners, that Bitcoin's going to go up to a million dollars. It's going to go up 50 times. Imagine you're you know, a trucking company, you borrow a million dollars to buy three rigs, and suddenly your debt goes up to $50 million. There's no way that three rigs can earn enough revenues to, to service a $50 million debt, so you go bankrupt. So if gold were to destabilize in value um, as, as a result of either a cap on its supply or even a supply was diminishing or something, um, and if that would happen, then there would be a, a real problem financing things. You know, I don't, I don't know what would happen in that world. That, that would be a real problem. So is it fair to say you think there is, there is some risk of deflation and deflationary collapse under certain circumstances? Well, I don't, I don't define deflation as a decrease in the quantity of money or decrease in, pri in the price level. Um, I define inflation as a monetary counterfeiting operation, a fraud, where you call it borrowing, but you don't have the means or intent to repay. So imagine your, your teenage kid says, Dad, can I borrow $1,000? You say, what do, you, what, what do you want that for? Oh, I want to take this girl and do this and that and the other thing. Yeah, but you don't have a job. How are you going to repay it? And the kid shrugs and says, whatever. You, you can call it borrowing, but it's not borrow. It's take. Give $1,000. So that's the position that the government is in today with, with, with what they call borrowing. And that's the basis of our, of our currency in every, in every country in the world is government borrowing. But the government lacks the means or intent to repay. The inevitable consequence of borrowing without the means or intent to repay is forcible contractions in credit, whether it's defaults, cram downs, whatever it is that the debtor has to do to get out of the obligation that they can no longer you know, even service. But what I'm talking about here is a bit different. I'm talking about if the cap, if there was a cap on the quantity and therefore the value were unstable and therefore producers couldn't use it to finance, what would they do? I, I wouldn't necessarily call that a deflationary scenario. I, th I, think, I think it needs to be thought of in different, in different terms than that. Well, maybe trying to rephrase that, it, let's say if the purchasing power of our money is going up consistently, is there some upper limit to that where everything destabilizes or not really? So if purchasing power is going up because production is increasingly efficient, then I don't see a problem or a limit to that. And a lot of people might call that deflation. So I wrote an article for Forbes probably 10 years ago. And I looked at some data from the Wisconsin Dairy Association. They published great data. You know, by my rough back of the envelope math, when you look at how many cows per acre, how much milk per cow, how much labor per cow, and so on, it was about a 90% reduction 
uh, in the real resources to produce a gallon of milk. I mean, that's, that's an incredible reduction in you know, real stuff. And so if you had a, a money that had a stable value, you should probably see approximately a 90% reduction in the cost of milk. You know, give or take, obviously retail price isn't necessarily reflective of cost, but in a highly competitive commodity, nobody can really get an advantage, then, um, then the margin's gonna be pretty consistent. The margin will be, you know, whatever the marginal producers walks away. Um, and so if the, if, the, if the cost drops by 90%, then the price of the consumer will drop by about 90% as well. Um, I don't see any problem with that. We obviously see it in computers, phones, software, um, big screen TVs, there's a lot of technology areas where that has absolutely been true and those industries, you know, thrived. So I don't, I don't see that as necessarily a problem. Um, but if, and, 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 and as a consequence of that, I don't think that one can invert consumer prices and say that's the measure of the money. That, okay, the value of a dollar is, is purchasing power. You know, how many, how many mugs of coffee can, uh, can a dollar buy? I don't think, you know, I, I kind of liken that to how, how many rubber bands long is a meter stick? Mm. You, can't use the, you can't use the rubber band and the meter stick in that way. It doesn't invert like that. And just to be clear, even if that's across the entire economy for all goods and not just a select sector like technology, do you still think that that's that's okay, that's not necessarily a problem? Yeah, I mean, if, if, it's, if it's coming about by, you know, improvements in production methods, and of course there's feedback in it. And one of the reasons why dairy production is so much more efficient is computerization and autom automation. Each cow is tagged with some sort of thing that every time they come into the feeding barn, the computer, you know, can scan it and read it, go deep, and they're giving each cow you know, the appropriate amount of nutrients and probably who knows all kinds of hormones and drugs as well. But each cow is getting a customized cocktail for that cow and they know how much that cow has eaten that day and how much that cow has, you know, gotten in terms of water and nutrients and whatever. The reduction in the cost of computers was a positive feedback into the reduction in cost of, of dairy production. I don't see any problems with that. I think that works just fine. Everybody becomes wealthier as a consequence of that versus, you know, the other reason why prices can drop, which has nothing to do with, you know, production increases, look at 2008 when, you know, financial markets collapse and everybody's laid off and everybody's bankrupt, then of course nobody can buy anything. And so if nobody can buy anything, then those few people that have, you know, cash sitting around in the bank suddenly find you can buy Rolexes and Ferraris and real estate and whatever else you want to buy a lot cheaper. And that's because, production was going with the assumption that, you know, demand would continue, but then demand collapsed because of the financial markets collapse. You know, in that situation, people can call that deflation, but, you know, that's a very different, uh, a very different animal. Okay. Now on a completely different topic, I heard you talking a little bit about the company you founded. And I think if I remember correctly, you sold in 2008. I was just curious, what is this technology? I think you referred to it as 3D voice, and you should you had said that it they're not doing anything with it. It's just sitting on the shelf. Is that still the case? Yeah. So um, we print. You know, back in those days, we printed up some T-shirts that said, 
I hear voices in 3D. So it was a it was a technology. So imagine people listening to this podcast, but imagine if there was, I don't know, four or five guests in it. If each voice sounded like it was coming from a different place in a three-dimensional, you know, sound field, you get intelligibility when people talk over each other. You get it's much easier to tell who's talking when people have similar voices. Uh, it's much less fatiguing to listen that way. We could change the parameters 10 times per second. So it works for 3D games and virtual reality and simulators and all kinds of things. It was a lot of fun to build that. A lot of challenges too. And I think we had 13 patents at the time I sold the company. What was your, I'm well, sorry, your, 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 I think I lost track. I was just question. asking if it's still the case that it's just kind of sitting on the shelf and it's not, nobody's using it. You know, I, I've been out of it since um, for the last 10 years. Right. I left and, and founded Monetary Metals in 2012. Diamond was acquired by Nortel Networks August 19th of 2008. As a historical, you know, as a matter of historical record, that was the last acquisition Nortel ever closed. I knew some companies that were in the process of being acquired that their acquisition deals didn't go through. Nortel then filed bankruptcy in January of 2009. I believe that's the biggest and the most complicated bankruptcy in corporate history. Um, it was the first time that there was a video simulcast of a trial in New York and a trial in Toronto or Ottawa, where the two courts were connected by a video conference because it was that much complicated international legal issues. So two courts <laughs> considering the same thing at the same time. Anyways, uh, that operated, or, or we, Diamond, were LTD, Little Arizona you know, Corporation, operated under Nortel's bankruptcy through 2009, and then during which they thought there would be restructuring. Nortel eventually turned into a liquidation bankruptcy. So not chapter 11, but I think chapter seven or 13. It's, it's been a long time since I remember what that was. And then at the end, Avaya won the auction and bought the Nortel Enterprise business, including um, Diamondware, which was attached to the Nortel Enterprise business. Me and my team stayed there through basically 2012 and then I said, okay, I, I, I just need to move on. Uh, others in my team moved on. I'm not aware of, you know, Avaya doing anything with it since then. It's possible they have, you know, I'm, I'm not aware. There are some companies now that have come out with 3D voice technologies that I think were folks that I knew at the time that have since moved on and been in a position to rebuild it as, as newer companies, which is fascinating, but... Have you heard anything uh, that's out now that's similar to what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, Apple has a thing now that kind of has some similarities. Facebook Meta, through their Oculus acquisition, has some, some similar stuff. I've come across a, like a virtual conferencing platform that the company that they licensed the tech from, and I don't remember the name of it, but the, uh, the founder of that was somebody I knew back in the Diamond War days, and it looks a lot like... I mean, I haven't evaluated any real technical depth. I have my hands full with monetary metals and gold. I've left the software development. I kind of feel like it's Elvis left the building. You know, Keith has left the, uh, the software development field and gone on to gold and economics and finance. So I haven't really evaluated any of these things in depth, but there are a few things now that look a lot like, you know, from their marketing materials, look a lot like what we were doing back in the day. That's uh, really interesting. When I heard you describe it, I just wanted to know is there somewhere i can hear something like that i was going to say um financially it was very good for me to sell the business but intellectually and emotionally it was very unsatisfying because 
that technology, when you've heard it working, is one of those things. It should become ubiquitous. It should be like the color TV, the microwave oven, the garage door opener. It should be one of those things that everybody just says, wow, how in the world did we live without that? Yeah, that's why I want. And I really was, wanted to hear it when I heard you talk about it. I just thought, wow, where, where can I see this or hear this? Yeah, I, I wish I had a better answer for you on that. I don't. One of the one of the great disappointments you just have to live. I I just have to live with. That's too bad. That's pretty much all the questions that I wrote down. But if you have anything else that you want to talk about about what you're doing in monetary metals, uh, I'd be happy to hear about it. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's worth touching on. I mean, there are a lot of companies that claim that they want to do good in the world, and it's kind of like buy your fast food, you know, greasy fries and hamburgers at you know company X. And then they'll give ten cents to, uh, uh, you know, to a kid who's who's going through chemotherapy or something. And there's no real connection between the hamburgers and the and the kid. It's just they bolted on or tacked on some charitable donation to the to the hamburger business, right? And I I don't know how well that works. I don't know that anybody would really buy their hamburgers there because of that. There's other companies where it's a little bit more integral. I mean, you look at companies like Patagonia and you know, environmentalism and conservationism and whatever you may think of that. But the people that value that tend to be loyal to that brand because that brand's a little bit more directly connected to that, although in an ironic way, because all their stuff is made from fossil fuels, right? It's all ripstop nylon and you know that kind of stuff. We are a company that is a for-profit company. Our goal is to make money for our uh, shareholders, including yours truly. But we want to make money by doing something good in the world and it's not a bolt-on. It's not a, oh, well, you know, we're selling hamburgers, making money, and then we'll give away a few pennies to salve our, our guilty consciences or whatever. Um, the way we make money is by paying investors interest on their gold and gold. That has an actual higher purpose in itself. And yes, we make money on that transaction. Our investors make money on that transaction. Everybody wins. And the businesses that we finance are enabled to make to make money as, as a result of getting the finance they need. But that transaction has a higher economic purpose, and that is moving the world towards the gold standard. So this started out as when I used to give economic talks back when I was studying economics, sometimes or often I'd have a slide in my slide deck that was kind of a picture of a little part of a plumbing system. And I had, uh, um, I think it's called a check valve, I'm not a plumber, but it's that valve that has a, a lever that turns 90 degrees. When it's parallel with the pipe, it allows flow and when, it, when you rotate it 90 degrees, so it's perpendicular with the pipe, it into, you know, stops all the flow and, and there's no water. And then you can drain the system, weld it, whatever. And I used that as an analogy for the interest rate in the gold standard and said when the interest rate is, is set by the market, then gold will flow. It's about the movement of gold. It's not about price of gold. It's about gold flowing and moving through the economy when the interest rate is, is set by the market, which is definitely not zero, some non-zero number then gold will flow and you know, clear trade and finance trade, which is what you want. But when, when the interest rate is somehow forced to zero, then the whole thing stops flowing, just like the, the water in that plumbing system doesn't flow when, you know, when the interest rate's zero. Anyway, that was just an economics idea. People heard that you know, in the audience and they're kind of like, okay, yeah, I sort of get it, whatever. But then how do you go from economic theory to building a business and I said, well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm too young to just retire. And secondly, I don't really consider myself to be an academic. I consider myself to be an entrepreneur. 
So how do you, how do you translate? And that the, the the business idea that comes out of that, the business model is we will raise gold from gold owners to put it into productive use and pay an interest rate in return. And the thesis then becomes, if we offer interest, gold will come out of private hoards and come into the market for selfish gain, for, for, for an interest rate. If I say, you know, lend me your gold and you say, what's the interest rate? And I say zero, then you're not lending me any gold, obviously. But if I say, hey, I'll pay you, you know, 2% or whatever, then suddenly gold comes out. So that was the hypothesis that monetary metals was founded on. And the first thing we had to do was prove that that was right. I mean, every entrepreneur thinks they're right. And a lot of times entrepreneurs are not right on their, on their basic premise. So we, we did that, we proved that and wow, you know, gold actually comes out for interest. That's the key. We're building this business that's growing exponentially. All of that's bully for us, you could say, but there's a higher purpose here, which is in a certain sense, you could say a good working definition or definition of a working gold standard is when anybody who wants to can deposit their gold and earn interest on their gold in gold. That's a working gold standard. So the working gold standard is when we scale up. That is what we are directed towards doing. We will obviously make a lot of money if we're successful doing that. That's what any startup is trying to do. But we're trying to make money by making the world a better place or making the world a better place and getting rich doing it. And, and those, two, those two things, making money and moving toward the gold standard are integrally, you know, they're integrated in monetary metals. They're not, one's not bolted onto the other. They're two, uh, two parts, two, two sides of the same coin, I guess, if you want to call it that. That's what we're doing. That's why I'm excited about it. And I think a lot of our, a lot of our clients, you know, are excited, first of all, to earn interest on their gold. I mean, if you have gold right now, you're going to pay for storage. You're going to pay 0.75% a year, typically, to store it. And then if we say, hey, we'll pay you 2 or 3% interest on it, that's a pretty good deal, you know, right there. But when they, when they hear what we're trying to do, why we're trying to do it, where we're going with all this, then, um, you know, people get excited because this is, this is the path to the gold standard. Everyone else is just buying and selling gold. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that doesn't, cha that doesn't change the monetary system. That just is okay if the Fed really screws it up, then gold's going to be ten thousand dollars an ounce, and okay, you know you have a gain, capital gain on your gold. But this is actually changing the economy in a way, you know, that's that's for the better. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Well, that's definitely very interesting, and that reminds me of one other question I had. I think I remember hearing that you said you were able to get the capital gains tax on gold abolished in Arizona. Is that correct? That's right. So there's been a number of states now that have repealed either sales. So Arizona did not have a sales tax on, on gold, but some other states do or did. So some states have repealed sales tax on gold. Some states have repealed capital gains tax on gold. Arizona as uh, is, is one of those. It took five years. I was there every year meeting with you know, both offline and in the, you know, in the committees, both in the House and the Senate side, writing to the governor, though I never got an audience with the governor, you know, talking about why this mattered, why this was good. After five years, we finally got something passed. Uh, anyway, a lot of other states have done, you know, similar or better things. Utah, for example, comes to mind as, as having gone much further. Than what Arizona did Utah did. do? They recognized gold oh, as money. Wow. Arizona fell far short of that. And how much was the capital gains tax before it was abolished? So Arizona treated, I'm, I'm no tax expert, but the way, the way it works in the United States is there's a capital gains tax rate. If it's, you hold it less than a year, it's ordinary income. 
and you pay ordinary income tax. If it's if you hold it less than a year, you, you pay tax at the rate you pay on ordinary income. If you hold it more than a year, there's a preferential uh, long-term capital gains tax. And in the case of gold, they have a higher penalty rate at the federal level versus any other kind of capital gain. And it's called a collectible. Arizona is, is somewhat unique among the states in that it basically says, add up your federal tax. And again, I'm not a tax expert, so I may be getting this slightly wrong. But basically, add up your federal tax bill, and then Arizona is going to be a percentage of that. Oh, I see. Um, so now this new Arizona gold you know, tax repeal thing um, says, remove that portion of your federal income that came from your gold gain. And so, you know, what does that work out to in terms of percentages? You know, at the Arizona level, it, you know, it could be four or five percent, you know, tax that you would have otherwise paid that now you don't, something like that. The bigger one's the federal one. But if enough states repeal it at the state level, then it shows there's momentum for U.S. Congress to introduce it at the, at the federal level. And what is, do you know what the federal tax is? You're saying that the capital gains tax federal is more than it is on other things? That's right. So yeah, if you buy and sell stocks, it's a certain rate. Um, I want to say that's 20% now. And gold, I want to say is 28%. Don't, you know, everybody listening to this, do not take this as authoritative. I'm not a tax guy. And I, I don't, I don't know these numbers that those numbers may or may not be right. But it's it's a higher rate. Even for, for bullion bars, not coins. That's right. It, it's they don't make a distinction, you know, in the form of gold. Well, that's certainly something that helps uh, discourage people to hold it and therefore has a suppressing influence on the price, isn't it? You know, yes, but also it dis it discourages people from selling it. People look at, you know, the gain, uh, the, the tax that they would have on the gain and they say, you know, maybe I'll sell another asset. And so I think it makes gold less, less liquid than it would be. I'm not sure that necessarily makes it less valuable. Yeah, that's interesting though. Well, that's everything I have. Uh, that concludes my notes, and we've been going for an hour. So unless there's any other thoughts uh, that you want to add, I think we can conclude this. No, and um, thanks for uh, Thanks, thanks for, for taking me. the time.